Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. I am beyond thrilled to have Andy Crouch back today with us. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Andy has written some phenomenal books. And the last time we talked about The Tech Wise Family, The Little Red Book is a fantastic book, The Tech Wise Family. And it's a great one to have on your shelf. It's full of amazing statistics, but it's also full of practical ideas for the everyday family on how to be wise about technology. And so that was a fantastic episode. I got so many messages about that one. Thank you. (laughs) Today, we're talking about a brand new book you wrote called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. I absolutely love it. It actually brought me a lot of hope. Can you tell us about this book and why you wrote it? Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad that it brought you hope. I want to hear more about that. So hopefully we can talk about that. I wrote it because I felt like there were some deeper issues behind the questions that I normally get about technology and family life. And I was happy to write The TechWise Family, but there are also some bigger issues. And this book, The Life We're Looking For, is about, in a way, the bigger picture, though I hope it also has some practical kind of implications. I think it does for the way we live. So yeah, it was an attempt to put into words why I think so much is at stake in the way we handle technology and where it's going uh, without our changing course. And then to also give us a picture of how we could change course and also hope that the course has been changed in the past because this book has one foot in the past in the Roman Empire, which was its own time of technology and so forth, when there there was a kind of renewal movement that took a very different direction. And so that was the idea behind the life Mm -hmm. we're looking for. Yes. And you say that the life we're looking for is someone looking for us. (laughs) <laughs> yes, this is... Uh, That's a big theme. This is a, I took this phrase from my friend Kurt Thompson, who's an amazing uh, writer and psychiatrist. And he says, every one of us is looking for someone looking for us. And you walk into a room and what are you looking for? You're looking for someone who's also looking for you. And that's also what we're looking for when we arrive in the world as babies. We're looking for, mm-hmm. the fa- for a face. So this book is about the deep thing that we are made for is personal connection, personal recognition, you could say. And the problem is that our world is, first of all, very immoral personal and also gives us all these simulations of connection and recognition like facial recognition which my phone will happily do which actually are not satisfying and so to me the real what's really at stake in the world of technology is it's not very well suited for the thing we most need and want which is connection with other human beings and recognition of one another right so what you're talking about is a little bit like an illusion and that theme runs through the book you talk about magic and (laughs) I remember reading, well, part of my story here is I started reading The Singularity, and I haven't finished it. It is very meaty and very long, and a lot of it I don't understand. It's Planck's constant and all of these different things, but I'm not through it. I've maybe read a third of it, and he talks in there about magic. Yeah, this is Ray Kurzweil's. Ray Kurzweil's book, yeah. Ray, yeah, yes. I've got. I had one of his keyboards when I was in high school. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, the singularity is near, and then he has one coming out next year, Andy, called "The Singularity Is Nearer." So I've been <laughs> like slightly off kilter from the things that he writes. Wow. It's a little alarming. This partially a big reason why your book brought me so much hope. I read it at, sort of simultaneously, but he talks in there about being really into magic and that's sort of this mm-hmm. theme here. So that's one of the things yeah. that you talk about. This is an illusion. We don't really know what's going on. You say, well, there's this quote and he has it actually in his book too, Andy, any sufficiently advanced technology yeah. is indistinguishable from magic. So can we yeah. start there about this illusion piece of what we right. think we're getting, but we're not really getting it? 
Right. So I think the desire to do magic is a very ancient human kind of impulse. It's the desire to have kind of effortless power over the world, to have the world just kind of rearrange itself in the way that we want it to be without us having to really do anything very hard. It's sort of like instant snap your fingers, say a magic word, push a button. And this uh, very famous quote by the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, basically says that technology satisfies this quest in a way that when it's sufficiently advanced, you don't really know how it's working and it, it takes very little effort and it just does the thing you want it to do. And this is why we buy a, a lot of the stuff we buy is that we sort of want access to that effortless power. Now, this is an interesting thing because we think we live in a modern world that doesn't believe in magic. So we think of magic as something that maybe superstitious people believed in or pre-modern people believed in. But I actually think we are just as drawn to this idea that we can just make the world do stuff without effort as we've ever been. And I think that's the basic quest of magic. And the truth is, the one advantage we maybe have as modern people is we know there's, there is actually no such thing. At least a lot of modern people believe this. Now, not everyone. Probably you and I both have neighbors who, who actually do believe that you can do magic in, in the old sense of the word. But I actually think when you try to operate that way, it always fails. That is, it always dis, or maybe it fails isn't the right word. It always disappoints. Magic always disappoints. And that's true for ancient forms of magic. And it's also true for technology. It is true that technology can be very helpful and useful to us, but it is not going to make our lives easy. <laughs> and that's really what we're looking for. And this is where I have, even though Ray Kurzweil, who is this very influential figure, you know, he himself built a lot of pretty amazing technology, including the keyboard that you had and that I had too. I had a, a Kurzweil keyboard, but he's He's now this sort of dreamer, basically, who dreams of a world in which human beings get overtaken by our technological systems. This is the idea of the singularity, that we as ordinary human beings will become very unimportant, and the machines themselves are going to kind of take over and liberate us from ordinary human existence. The difference between us, we agree that this is what human beings are looking for. The difference is, A, he thinks it's a good thing and that we're going to get there. And I think it's a, actually a dangerous and bad quest that has always led to very very damaging effects. And I also think it's not going to happen um, because I don't actually think you can do magic in the way that Ray Kurzweil thinks you can or in the way that some ancient magician thought you can. The world is both more beautiful and more harder <laughs> than magic implies. Mm -hmm. But wow. the more time you spend as an individual, as a family, or as a society chasing this dream, the more damage you actually do to our relationships with each other and ultimately, in a way, with the world, the outside world, the created world. So, you know, Ray Kurzweil, I agree, everybody's looking for it. Uh, it's kind of the false life we're looking for in terms of the title. Of my, it's like the, it's what we shouldn't be looking for, but we are. <laughs> right. But the difference is he thinks we're going to get there, and I think we're not. And I think we're going to do a lot of damage along the way if we keep pursuing this dream of magic through technology. It's a really deep book and I hadn't read anything like it. So I was thrilled to read it. Like I said, mm -hmm. it, it brought me a lot of hope. And there was a couple key themes that really stuck out to me. One was about kind of what you're talking about here with the magic. And you have these different words, effortless power. You talk about abundance without dependence. You were talking about that in terms mm -hmm. of moving and paying a mover, which I thought was a really uh -huh. interesting story. But this concept of you'll no longer have to but at the same time, you no longer get to. And I thought the part about the path and the roads illustrated that so well, the, a you know, the automatic driving cars. So can you talk about yeah, what that yeah. means? You no longer have to, but also you no longer get to. 
Yes. Okay. That's, I'm so glad you noticed that. And uh, I don't call it this in the book, but I've come to call this kind of the innovation bargain that uh, all innovation of all kinds, and it, actually this is true through all of human history, not just technology. It comes with kind of two promises and two consequences. The two promises and the reason we adopt these things, the reason you get a robot vacuum, the reason you get a dishwasher, the reason you get an iPod is we, uh, the two promises are now you'll be able to and now you won't have to. Um, in other words, you'll have expanded capabilities. Now you'll be able to do something you weren't able to do before and or you'll have diminished kind of burdens. Um, and it, you'll no longer have to vacuum yourself. Just tell the Roomba to do it and it'll roll around and, and vacuum for you. And all tools and all technology are adapted because we have some combination. Either we think, oh, now I'll have these new capabilities I didn't have before or, oh, thank goodness, I'll be relieved of this burden that I that I have. But those are only two of the four consequences. And this, the second two, we never talk, we talk about much less, let's say. And you mentioned one of them, which is now you'll have to. So now there's going to be some requirements in your life, things you have to do that you didn't have to do before. It, there's this coercive quality, like especially once this thing becomes a kind of a social system, not just something you own, but something everybody owns. So think about how one of the very common reasons parents say they get their children's cell phones, even at very early ages is, well, otherwise I won't be able to reach them at uh, soccer practice, or or we won't even know when the soccer practice is going to be, right? Well, why is that? Or everyone else has it. I mean, that was a really big thing. I wrote a post, it was years ago, but when our daughter was in fourth grade, our oldest daughter was in fourth grade, so she was 10. She played mm -hmm. on a rec basketball league in our area, and we went to practice, and there was photos, and so they were there a little early, and every other child was on their phone in the downtime, mm -hmm. and she didn't have one. And I watched from afar, like how awkward. I oh. cried. Oh, I cried. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so, so hard to see. She yes. was so out of place. Yes, exactly. And this is this course of like, now that everybody has, uh, every kid has a phone. And so they have a way to entertain and distract themselves during the downtime. If you don't have one, like you will have to have that to feel like you're connected to the world, like you're having fun. And of course, before that happened, there were other ways to have fun <laughs> besides looking at your screen. But it feels very coercive, right? It feels like, gosh, I don't have any choice. Like if I don't want my daughter to be just, you know, really, really sad and, and isolated, uh, or I don't have any choice to find out when soccer practice is. If we're not on Facebook, we won't find out. So oh, yes. we never realize when we buy the thing or sign up for the service or whatever, it's always sold on. Oh, you'll be able to do all these things. But nobody says, and also, by the way, you will absolutely have to, and there will be no other way to get things done. So that's, that's the third thing you'll have to. And then in some ways, the most surprising is, that for a lot of these technologies, there's a fourth consequence, which is, which is now you'll no longer be able to. Things you were able to do before, you'll forget how to do them. You'll lose the capability to do them. When you think about how kids in those um, downtimes during practice used to find ways to socialize and interact with each other, and now they interact mostly with and through a screen. Now, they are often interacting with other kids, but not necessarily the kids they're with. They're you know at social media with kids who may not be there, their friends who aren't there or whatever. And it used to be that kids figured this out. It was sometimes awkward. Sometimes it took a while. It certainly did for me. I was not a super socially smooth kid, but I learned, right? Well, today I might, if I were a kid now with this kind of limited social skills I had as a fourth grader, I wouldn't ever have to develop those skills because I can just always pull out my phone if I'm a typical kid. So it's not just 
you know, we, we think, oh, I won't have these burdens, but you also will no longer have these abilities that you once had. Wow. And I think about one, to me, one of the most poignant things. So it sounds like you are a musician if you had a Kurzweil keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I am too. I, I grew up playing the piano and, uh, and I love music and I love making music. I love helping people make music. But I will tell you what's happening in our world right now. We, ha we have more music playing than we've ever had <laughs> because you can stream music every minute of the day. There's a radio signal, you know, a Spotify signal or Apple music or whatever. Like people have music playing more than they've ever had. There's In one way, there's more music than ever. And in another way, we have fewer people playing music than ever. That is fewer people wow. actually make the music so really? we can consume the music. Oh, it's, I mean, if you look at the decline in how many children no take idea. music lessons, schools have cut music from their programs. Children used to wow. all learn to read music in school. And then of course, people often went to church uh, and they would learn to read music through the hymnal. Well, now the band plays and the band sings and there is no music in front of you and the congregation in my observation um if you go to a lot of very successful churches that have amazing music coming from the speakers mm -hmm. what you don't see is amazing music coming from the congregation they're kind of right. swaying along half singing maybe not every place but in a lot of places so this is a classic case where now you'll be able to listen to music whenever you want oh that sounds great sign me up oh but you'll no longer be able to make music <laughs> like you'll never go through the process of formation Right now, if if you want, I can take I can talk about the path and the road briefly to to show that. I mean, I love the path and the road. I, I think you had some really good examples in there. You'll no longer be able to remember your mother's phone number. Yes. I just read "Stolen Focus" by <laughs> Johan Hari, and yeah. he says, yes. you know, people they can't read, they can't yes. read anymore. You'll no longer be able to pay attention. <laughs> right, pay attention. You go to Harvard. He says at Harvard they're having to use YouTube videos. At Harvard, the, the professors can't even give out these assignments of books because our attention oh, has gone. And in your book, The Path, The Road, I thought the self-driving yeah. car was a really good example, yeah. right? So yep. I really liked the part about the road and the path, and you'll no longer be able to. So yeah, I would love to talk about that. Yeah, the path and the road, and then we'll extend it into the self-driving car because it's got the ultimate example. Mm -hmm. um, the path and the road comes from an essay by the writer Wendell Berry, who's a really important person who sees a lot of things that many people haven't seen. And he distinguishes, and I'd actually, um, he calls it the path and the road, but I'd call it the path and the highway. Like think about an interstate mm -hmm. highway. And, and Barry says, you know, there's one way to get through a landscape, which, which we call a path, which is worn often over generations by sometimes by animal feet, as well as human feet. And the thing about the path is it has these qualities you'll no longer, uh, or, or uh, first, now you'll be able to, you'll be able to get more easily from one place to another, because there's a path there, you don't have to bushwhack, right? And you'll no longer have to clear the way. So th that's good, right? And a highway does that too, right? If you build an interstate highway, well, now you'll be able to get from my city to yours faster, and you'll no longer have to, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, drive on a bumpy road. It's an extremely highly engineered highway. The thing is that the highway has much more of consequences three and four. That is now you'll have to, and you'll no longer be able to than the path because the highway rules out other things. So you cannot walk along an interstate highway legally. It's illegal to walk there. You can't ride a horse. You have to drive a car. And in fact, to live in most parts of our country, the United States today, you really have to have a car to, to, survive and, and certainly to thrive. And that's because we've built all these highways that there is no other option really for most people to get most places. And you'll no longer be able to, you're no longer allowed to walk uh, in certain places. You'll no longer be able to enjoy or experience the kind of wildness and wonderfulness of traveling through the world because you're in, encased in an automobile that lets you go really fast. 
the path doesn't have as many trade-offs. And that is to say, uh, if there's a path, you can go off the path. Whereas if you're driving on the interstate, like, you know, it's limited access. You, you can't go off it. So the path allows for wandering in a way that the highway doesn't. And the path doesn't diminish and close off capabilities in the way that the highway does. If we lived in a world of paths, I know it's very strange to imagine that because it's just not how our world is, our country is. But actually in Switzerland, Switzerland and Germany in the Alps, they have this amazing network of paths that have been created for hundreds of years. They're called Wanderwegs, uh, wanderways, ways to wander, right? And people just live walking from one village to another. And think about what they experience of the world, what they discover about themselves, what they discover ultimately about God in a way, the creator of all this. None of that happens in the same way, at least on an interstate highway. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops' price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code OUTSIDE120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. So the path in the road is a reminder that there are often ways to introduce innovation without closing down human capabilities or enforcing kind of coercing. But it's a choice we make. And we often choose the magic of the highway rather than the kind of good uh, limits of the path. Does that make sense? Well, and I think the point the point of the book is that no one's thinking about it or talking about it much. 
that's maybe right. not We're, hardly at all. And so that's what the book does. It opens your mind to say, yes. you have this statement in there that says, countless dimensions of human culture and history are excluded by the highway, by the main yeah. road. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so it just makes you think about what exactly, no one thinks about it. You, oh, here's my yes. shiny new phone. Here's my Google Maps. Yes. Here's all of these yes. things. And I don't think about, there is a trade-off. And exactly. you explain it so well in the book with such amazing examples. And then when you talk about the automated cars, it yeah. makes you think, what's the next step? Well, what if you don't want to drive an automated car, but then you're going to be excluded? Exactly. And this is where the, the fact that magic doesn't work actually matters in a way. So the thing is this dream, like we have this dream of self-driving cars. Like they'll just drive themselves. They'll go anywhere you want. They'll take you anywhere you want. You won't have to drive. You know, and you're I've no been longer in one. have to. I've yeah. been in one, a Tesla yeah. on the highway. I mean, you turn, yeah. it's crazy. Mm -hmm. right. They're there, is, they're out it there. It is incredible. And I, I I drive a Tesla actually. And I when I get on the highway, I love the auto steer thing. Now the dream of self-driving is actually goes beyond what any car does today, really. There's a few isolated places where they're able to do this, that it would go not just on the highway, but anywhere, right? Well, I will tell you, this will not actually happen. I'm going to put a stake in, in a prediction when I could be wrong, but my prediction is we will find that environments that are good for human beings are not good for machines and not good for machine intelligence. And so we already have fully autonomous vehicles that go back and forth uh, between destinations. If you've ever been to an airport that has one of those uh, like um, subways or trams that like gets mm -hmm. you from one terminal to another, those often have no driver. Like they're totally self-driving because they're rail they're on rails, right? right. Machines need machine-like environments to operate in autonomously. So what's going to happen as we deploy what we're going to call self-driving technology, like literally there is no steering wheel, you can't drive it, is we will actually have to create, we're going to create roadways. And literally this is being discussed in Europe and in the US by policymakers. We're going to create roadways that completely exclude human beings, that exclude human driven vehicles, because that's what actually makes it safe and possible for machines to operate autonomously. But this means, you know, right now you really don't want to walk across an interstate uh, or ride a horse next to an interstate. Well, there's literally going to be roads you can't drive your car on and they're going to be fenced off. They're going to exclude human beings and animals and so forth. And it's just going to be the next level. And at the same time, if you get... So the thing about these self-driving cars is they're amazing like the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, it's driving itself. But that delight dwindles and diminishes very quickly. And you get to what I call the boring robots phase, which is if I showed my great-grandmother my dishwasher in our kitchen, like, look, it does the dishes. She'd be like, oh, this is incredible. But do you or I find it like amazing that our dishwasher watches the dishes? Like, no, that's boring, right? And all this technology start it has this initial like, oh, it's incredible. It's like magic, but it's not actually magic. It's just boring implementation of properties of the world that leave us with nothing to do. So the most boring place in the world to be will be in a self-driving car on a, a self-driving highway. And what you'll have is people desperate for entertainment, desperate for distraction, but not good at connection, not good at making their own joy and not good at interacting with the actual world, which is so abundant. So wow. I don't doubt this trade-off is going to be made and it'll have some benefits but let's think about what we're trading away and how are we going to get the really good things uh, when we're settling for these kind of just little adjustments and how easy or hard our lives are. Yes. Yes. I love the statement of, are we making our environment for machines? More and more of human yeah. life will be consigned to environments that work better for machines. Is that what we want? And it really makes you exactly. think. And I love what you said about the boring robots was one of my favorite parts of the whole book because they're boring <laughs> and it's true. And I've never thought about it. And you know, you talk about riding in an airplane 
fine. It's so exciting when you're six or you're 12 and you go for the very first time, but that's it. After that, this is boring. I got to wait in these lines and all these different things. And they just do become boring. And then though, you talked about your bike, your bike rides. Yes. That has never changed. And you talked about your piano. So what are the things that don't become boring? Right. So, and this is really where I think the book, the, the our argument of the book, the case the book makes turns from kind of critique and, and kind of depressing, you know, realities to hope. Because in fact, we, we know there are things, and some of them are pretty technological. That is, they require a lot of accumulated skill and ingenuity and invention to exist. Like the bicycle. The bicycle is a, you know, reasonably high tech thing. It has very high tech materials and has gears and all this stuff that most human beings didn't have access to, but I do in the form of a bike. And the beautiful thing about the bicycle is that when I am out on my bike, even though it required a lot of technology, a lot of kind of advanced economy to produce a a modern bicycle, I am fully in the world. It's much more like the path than the highway. That is to say, yes, it does make it. Now you're able to go faster than you can on foot. So it really does add that. And now you no longer have to, I don't know. um, You have to walk everywhere. You don't have to walk everywhere, right? But it doesn't reduce my capabilities. It, if I ride, uh, and I ride a lot, I, I try to get 20 miles a day and uh, when it, the weather's nice, it actually expands my capabilities. Like I notice more about uh, my neighborhood. We, we are living in uh, the city of Boston this year. We moved here for just over a year. And so I have a whole new city to get to know. And I tell you, I know the part of it that I bike in so much better than I know the parts I only drive in. Because when you're on a bicycle, you experience all of it. You like the beautiful things about it, but also if you drive through a neighborhood that isn't well taken care of, you feel that much more on a bike than you do in a car. And it's not coercive in the same way. Like it doesn't force you into patterns that aren't good for you. And so the the word I use in the book for this kind of generically or as a whole is there are these things called instruments. Obviously the piano is another example. And so is the digital piano. So it can be very high tech, but it doesn't do anything sort of on its own. It doesn't just sort of operate on your behalf and leave you with nothing to do. It actually involves you more in the world. It invites you into a full engagement with the world and you become a deeper, better, more capable human being with other people as you use this thing. So well, ironic about the piano and the digital piano. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about that. And ironic because Kurzweil made the digital piano and <laughs> they are not the same. If you no, have an opportunity to play somewhere and I play funerals and weddings and all sorts of things, mm-hmm. bring my keyboard in the thing and set up, it is not the same as there being an actual no. piano there. Even if it's just an old upright, yeah. you would choose that any day, an actual That's piano. So- I've never thought about that though. No, it's so true. I And it is actually interesting that for the most valuable things you might say, there really is never a digital substitute that's that's adequate because the analog piano is so funny. You say, so actually my father died in October. And so I, my son and I did the music at his funeral. My son plays the viola and I play the piano. And we, the church that the funeral was in had a nice new digital piano and it had an old neglected upright. Guess which one we decided to use? The old neglected Always. upright sounded better sounded richer even though it wasn't quite in tune like the digital piano is perfectly in tune every key has the same action you know but the moment we sat down and tried each one we're like oh no no, no. we're doing the, the real thing there is something resonant and beautiful about those i would call them like pre-technological instruments versus the technological instruments mm-hmm. At the same time, we're living in an apartment this during this one year where we're living uh, in a different city where it would be really hard to, we have a grand piano at home, it would be really hard to move it and fit it in. So we are, I do have a digital piano in this house. And I will tell you, they've gotten good enough that I'd rather have it than not have any instrument, right? But even the digital piano requires me to play. 
develops me as I play. And in a way, the hope I have is that if enough of us would say, hey, I don't actually want a world full of devices that just operate on their own all the time. I want a world full of instruments. Like, could we use our iPhone as an instrument rather than using it as a magic device? Mm -hmm. Could we actually have forms of transportation that are much more like instruments rather than just being self-driving and we have nothing to do? If enough of us wanted that, it would create a market that would shape what technology creates. But right now, what technology creating is mostly boring robots. Yes. And a place where there's no, not as much relationship. And that was in the Stolen yes. Focus book too, where yep. Johan Hari, he said, why doesn't Facebook just have it pop up? Here's where your friends are. Go get together with them. It's like, well, because then they're going to be off of Facebook and they don't have your attention. And I had an interview once with a, a company, it's called Cosmo Technologies, and they make smartwatches for kids. So parents yep. can feel more comfortable yep. to send them to the neighborhood park because there's fear and that sort of thing. Yep. And so they're going to send their kid. He said, why doesn't Apple have have an Apple kids phone. Why not? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, it makes you think because yes. they're not going to be able to grab the attention. It's not the moneymaker. And so these technologies that they steal from our relationships and yep. now you're no longer able to, you're no longer able to. This is something that I talk about with my friends a lot is our kids are becoming teenagers. I would love it if when their friends call, I got to talk to them too. Ah, uh, indeed. Indeed. Remember when we had our home phone? And so I would have to call my friend and I'd have to talk yes. to their mom for 90 seconds and, and yes. say, hi, this is Ginny and is Carrie available? That type of thing. Wow. And so we lost that. I don't get to do that. All that communication Whoa. leaves the family and becomes individual. That, oh my gosh. That is so, I've, that's very insightful. I've never thought about that particular thing that you'll no longer have to talk to your friend's mom, mm -hmm. but that also means you'll no longer be able to learn how to have a conversation with someone from a different generation, be yeah. integrated into it, see your friend as integrated into a family, that your friend's part of a family and you as their friend are kind of included in their family and see how that family works for better and for worse. Yes. All that gets lost as we have these kind of point-to-point -point individual communication devices. Yeah, it's a big trade-off. I mean, this is why we told... We told our kids, uh, I said this in the TechWise family, we, we told our kids when we got an iPod when they were small, we said, we, we actually didn't let them know it was called an iPod. iPod. We said, this is called a WePod <laughs> because <laughs> our, our number one rule wow. was no individual music. In other words, if there's going to be music playing, everybody has to hear it. So if we're in the car going somewhere, let's put on music that we all listen to, but no headphones, no individual music because music is meant to be communal. It's meant to connect us with other people. So if you're going to play music, have everybody hear it so that everyone is kind of having that experience wow. but you're right all good things i believe come from relationship i mean this podcast is way more interesting because it's a conversation than if it were a monologue now i know there are some podcasts that are monologues but it's compelling when people do things together but part of what we're losing is the very fundamental ability to know how to do things together in other words you don't just wake up as a, a one-day-old child and know how to do relationships it takes a lot of uh, learning and difficulty and disappointment and reconciliation and the more that you have kind of this cheap magic in your life, the less you have to learn any of those things. But that also means that when we get in the same room together, we don't know what to do together. We don't know how to do things, especially difficult things together. Do we know how to sing together? Do we know how to read aloud together? Do we know how to interpret our world together? And when all of that is mediated through individual and individualized technologies, we just forget how to be human. Wow. 
And you talk about that in the book. I mean, this is uh, that is so interesting. The Wii Pod. Why is it called an iPod and an iPad and an iPhone? That's really interesting. Yeah, I everything. And it is, it's very uniquely designed for us. And you talk about that. And then you say, well, then it's hard to be around things that are not uniquely designed for us. And I thought yes. that was really interesting too. Yes. In a way, we lose the, um, I mean, the deep thing is having, the more you want your life to be easy, the less you're going to be able to handle it when it's not easy, when it's not customized for you, when it's not perfectly suited for you. Mm -hmm. But all real human life is on the other side of difficult things. Relationships are difficult. Life is difficult in this world. But there's beauty and creativity possible on the other side of that. But if you just always stay on the side where everything's easy, you never discover actually what's possible uh, in a relationship, in a given sport or, or music musical activity or in a book. If you just wait for it to be easy, it's never going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's such such a good book. Okay, uh, here's, here's where I picked it up and I was like, I needed to read this. So I said, I have been reading The Singularity by Ray Kurzweil. So these are the, some of the things he says in like the first quarter, because like I said, I haven't <laughs> finished it. <laughs> yeah. like I'm getting lost a little bit. He talks about us as 1.0 biological bodies. He talks about our limitations. He <laughs> says, there will be no distinction post-singularity between human and machine or between physical and virtual reality. By 2050, $1,000 of computing will exceed the processing power of all human brains on Earth. He talks about a future that transcends biology, human-machine civilization, this type of thing, right? This is the theme of the book. Yeah. And so... I think rightfully so. I was fairly freaked out. (laughs) And a lot of people talk about this singularity. And I had talked to Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He writes about technology and specifically technology toward kids. And that was in his book. He's talking about what is the drive here? Why are they continuing to drive? And this is what the tech oligarchs are driving toward. So I'm sort of sufficiently freaked out. And then I pick up your book and you say, it's already happened. It's already happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I never heard anyone say that. And it made a lot of sense. And then you also said things that I kind of already know, that intelligence is not just in our mind. Intelligence is in our body. I have this book. It's one of my favorite books. It's called Smart Moves, Why Learning is Not All in Your Head. It's about how all of your senses bring in information. That's how we learn. So I was like, wait, I kind of already know a little bit of this. And you Mm -hmm. made a really compelling argument. It's already happened. Yes. Yes. I argue and I and I very I very much have Ray Kurzweil in mind. In fact, I will tell you my editor made me cut a bunch of pages pages that were just like slamming Ray Kurzweil. He said, like, just make your case, don't like go after him. Uh, partly because Ray Kurzweil is a pretty extreme figure and lots of people already make fun of him and, and go after him. <laughs> But anyway, so I very much had him in mind, but I believe if there is such a thing as a singularity, and that is basically where autonomous uh, machines uh, and, you know, what I would call devices become integrated into human life and, and we, in a way, are symbiotic with them. I actually think that happened over the course of like my parents' lifetimes in the last 80 years. It's it's in the rear view mirror, not in the future. There's not this, and, and by the way, you know, you you quote him as saying 2050, $1,000. Well, by the power of all the human brains, you know, well, first of all, who says that human brains are what we actually need? Maybe we actually need bodies and souls as and hearts as well as minds to get anything done really in the world. But I will also tell you, 15 years ago, Ray Kurzweil was making that prediction and his uh, deadline was 2020. So he keeps moving the date out and saying, oh, this this future is coming. And, and I want to say, no, we, we already live with incredible amounts of power, with incredible amounts of computation. And I agree that raw computing power is growing and probably will continue to grow. And it, it will do things that it can't do today. But we already know what it's like 
to live in this kind of um, mixed environment where I do have to, I mean, to talk to my mom, even if I know her number, I still have to, I rely on a telephone system that's a computational electronic system. And we already know that we're not fundamentally different from our great grandparents who didn't have that. We have the same fundamental needs as they had and the same fundamental capacities. It's just that we also know it's actually not as great as they thought it would be. Like Francis Bacon, who was this thinker who lived in the 18th century, he had this sort of glimpse. He was like, oh, if we really figure out the laws of nature and nature's secrets, we will be able to relieve the, he called it the relief of man's estate. That is all these things that, are, that trouble us as human beings, we'll just be able to wipe them away. Sickness, illness, toil. And we know now that actually a world where the machines do everything from you as a machine is a world with all kinds of sickness that his world didn't even know because uh, it's called metabolic syndrome. Most of us have it. Because we're not moving. We're not moving. We're not engaging with the world. Right? Yes, you touch on that in the book. So yes, moving. at the moment, we don't die of infections or childbirth as much as people do in this time, but we also die of diabetes and heart attacks way more than people do this time. So there was this dream that we'll be able to do magic. And we just, we know the one advantage we have now compared to like our great grandparents is we know it's not actually true, but that mm. dream is still driving people like Ray Kurzweil. And it's also driving the economy of what gets implemented technologically. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com 1000 hours. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. What gets money? The, this Cosmo yeah, exactly. technology, Cosmo technology that they make this smartwatch, they said we can't get any funding. 
Because wow. they say, well, what, what's your model? What's your economic model? And how are you going to be capturing eyeballs and capturing attention? And they say, we're not. They can't get funding. <laughs> and and I hope and I believe, I believe there is a business to be built there, but it's not going to be built on that VC model of funding that's looking for a thousand X returns because you're basically disrupting the healthy human life <laughs> and capturing it and repurposing it. In some ways, it's good news they can't get funding. I mean, it makes it hard for them as a business, but 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 it says a lot about them. I think it says they're going in the yes, right direction. That they're they're willing to find go the harder path in the short run in order to give people a healthier way. And but we as customers, right, as consumers, we need to be asking for different things because you know sixty percent of the American economy is consumer decisions. And the reality is, we make these decisions. We want magic. We are at least. We want it to feel like magic. And the companies are like, okay, let me show you some magic. What if we said, actually, we want instruments. We want a way for our kids to play outside uh, uh, most of the day. Like, how could you help with that rather than giving them things that lure them inside? And, you know, we could ask for different things and that would change the incentives uh, for mm-hmm. at least some producers at some margin. Right, right. And I love when you talk in the book about movement. I was surprised. I love surprises in books when it goes a way that you're not <laughs> oh, expecting yeah, yeah. it to go. And the movement was, you talk about three plain three people. Tell, tell yeah, us about yeah. that. Yeah, I, I uh, had just by chance met this quite fascinating uh, uh, trainer, like a high level athletic trainer named Steve Merland, who trains professional athletes. And he introduced me to this idea that, that many exercise people already know, but I hadn't heard it before of the three planes of the human body. So it's the sagittal, axial, and coronal planes are like the technical words. And basically the idea is we're meant to move in three dimensions, forward and back, side to side. And then the way we move forward and and back and side to side is that we transmit forces through the the other plane, which is kind of the one parallel to the floor. That is, you twist your body in various ways. If you think about walking, you're actually kind of twisting your body back and forth around your hips as your legs move. And all that power that makes it possible to move in the other two dimensions gets transmitted through this kind of torque plane, the coronal plane. And this idea was so fruitful for me. First of all, just like actually asking how much of my day do I spend moving. Uh, Interestingly, just a few minutes ago, in three planes. So a few minutes ago, I'd I'd gotten off a phone call. I was like, oh, I'm talking to Ginny. I'm going to be sitting at my desk for a while, you know, to get good audio and so forth. So because I had talked with Steve Merlin a few years ago about three planes, I was like, I need to get up. I need to move through my house, do some things in my house that involve bending, reaching down, lifting things, move, you know, just moving around because I'll actually have a better conversation if I've had some three plane movement than if I just sit here answering email or something. Um, And I had the presence of mind to say, oh, no, I need to be a body again. (laughs) Um, And it is hard. That's actually one of the things that I'm doing this year that I've never done before. We're actually also aiming, we do the thousand hours outside, but I'm trying to move for a thousand miles and our kids are doing it. And that could be on a scooter. You would, you would be done in like a week. Uh, But I'm just walking. And it's because in this last year, I started this podcast. I wrote two books. I sat and I feel it. And I sat for a majority of the year and it really impacted how I feel, my emotions, my health, my vitality. And so this three plane movement, you talk about that there are careers where there's three plane movement, but that's not the one I'm in. I'm in a sitting no, career. 
mm-hmm. and more and more people uh, are immobilized, sometimes to, for the machine's convenience. You know, this is a, a potential, like this may sound like science fiction, but science fiction is just <laughs> one du- direction reality could go. Right now, why do we sit to do these things? Because we need the screen, right? Why do we have the screen? The screen is basically for the convenience of the computer. It's a way for us to interact with the computational power of a computer. But in a hundred years, do we have to be sitting in front of screens or could we actually leverage technology to allow us to interact with computers in various ways, but to be moving while we do that? Yeah, like why couldn't we be doing this while we're walking? Exactly. That would be amazing. I'm thinking about that. Exactly. And that requires technological solutions that don't exist yet, because right now the main way to efficiently get information in and out is to have a keyboard, a mouse, and a screen. But you know, the mouse was invented just 30-ish years ago, 35 years ago, maybe now. It was an invention. What if we invented a way to interact with computers that didn't require us to be sedentary, to be sitting? But in the meantime, you know, my next thing after we talk, I have an appointment to talk with someone one-on-one. And I think before I I talked with Steve Merland and thought about three-plane movement and uh, all this, I would have just sat for the phone call. But now, every time I have a one-on-one phone call with someone, I walk. So I'll go outside, probably. It's raining today. Maybe I'll walk around my house, but I'll move. That's okay. You can can go out in the rain. You can do that. Yeah, we did that last night. Yeah, I was trying to get my movement in and it was raining and we went out in the dark and we had hats on with lights and it was really fun and a different kind of magic. There's something out there that makes your senses come alive when you're out in the rain and you're in the dark and it makes you feel more human. And that's what your book is about. Your book is about humanity. That was a huge section that I wrote in here. And I think for me, it was a counterpoint. You read something and you think this is the way it is. And then I picked up your book and I was like, oh, wait, no, there's a counterpoint point argument here and a really, really good one that humanity is worth fighting for. And this future, this past future thing, which you touched on a teeny bit at the beginning, but you say, you talk about how, I'm going to try and find this sentence. Well, I love that you say we were promised jetpacks. I mean, I think this is important, (laughs) right? That like your point is that now we know it really doesn't provide what was promised. You had amazing sentences in here. We were not promised the disengagement and dullness of boring robots. We were not promised the addiction, the anxiety. We were not promised being drained dangles of satisfaction. I mean, such good wording. We were promised fullness. We were promised allness of life, but it's it's not providing. And so you talk yeah. about how you say the best argument for this view of the future is a view of the past. What if the mm-hmm. future of technology is the same as the past? What if there's no like magical horizon out there, singularity? In that case, we've got to actually choose a different future. And, and I think we can and I think I think the question is somewhat rhetorical. Basically, you lay out this line that it is. It is going to be the same yeah. as the past. It's going to seem yeah. shiny. It's going to seem new. Yeah. And then it's yeah. going to seem boring. Exactly. Very quickly. Yes. And it will not satisfy. It'll be useful. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying these things aren't useful. And they're good for certain little things, you know, uh, but not for being human. Uh, we got to kind of reclaim the quest to be human. Yeah. And we can. That's why, you know, things like what you're doing uh, and the reason people are drawn to it is I think many of us sense uh, we need to ask, ask for, seek, and at some cost to ourselves in a way, uh, you know, uh, do something harder and better. Yeah. 
So there was one thing in the book that really stuck out to me. There was a lot of things in the book that really stuck out to me. But one that I think would be so fitting for this audience, it's an audience of parents mainly, Mm -hmm. and an audience of a lot of parents that have very young children. And it is very hard to have very young children. They have a lot of needs, and it is exhausting. And you're talking here about this, a personal encounter with a one-year-old. You write, a personal encounter with a one-year-old may well involve me in conversations or activities that I will quickly find. Find repetitive or boring, but the technologies at the frontier of personalization, on the other hand, are exquisitely attuned to me, to my attention span, finely calibrated to my interest, to my need for novelty and stimulation, even to my particular insecurities and fantasies. And so I thought this was such an important thing for parents to be aware of, because I think this is stealing from our relationship with our kids. Yeah, I don't think there's any of us who, uh, well, I have a friend uh, who's a songwriter. He has a song that begins, I won't sing it, but I'll say the the beginning words are, have you ever been so selfish that you let your, ba- your baby cry while you finished up a video game? And then the next line is it's a song? The song begins that way. Have you ever been wow. so selfish? You let a baby cry before you finish up a video game. And then the next line is, I haven't either. Uh, and of course, the joke is, uh, maybe I've done that. And what we find is when we're in these difficult, difficult stages of parenting that are sometimes, I mean, it, it's like this combination of just incredibly overwhelmingly challenging. And then sometimes just very, very boring because the two-year-old just wants to talk about the same yes, thing. Yes, it is. It is. I think that's a really important thing to say. It is boring. It's a little you know, mind numbing. Oh, and like, you know, you're reading the same book time and time again, and they want to play the same thing time and time again. That's helping them develop their brains. But I think that right. this, but this goes in line with the power of community and humanity and relationship. Because yeah. if you do it with just one other person. And I've had times in my life where I have just had one other friend, just one, that's in the same stage of life. And we can come together and be mothers together for a couple hours in the afternoon. We can share our dinners. We can do these different things. It changes the entire experience. So right. That's so right. I think one of the most poignant things after I wrote the check, I was I did an interview with some journalists and one of them said, she said, how can you tell me not to use my phone when I'm at the playground with my kid and they're on the play set and I have nothing to do? It's so boring. She was being very honest and and I respect Mm. that. But what I thought was, well, people used to talk with each other, like the moms and and dads used to talk with each other, like find someone to talk to. And the part of the problem is we've become so isolated. We're trying to do this all on our own Mm. and it is almost impossible to do it on your own. And I love what you said, you know, even just having one other person. In the book, I talk about households, which are kind of uh, ways of living with other people that are bigger than just a single family. And you know, the reality is most of us live in dwellings designed for a single family. But one of the questions I've started asking people is, uh, does anybody have the key to your house who doesn't live in your house? Like, who do you know well enough? Not that they violate your privacy or would just let themselves in at any moment, but you trust them enough that that boundary of the door and the lock on your house is open to them because you want them in your life. And I actually think if you don't have some people who have the key to your house, you are in danger as a human being of isolation, of a great deal of frustration that you don't have to bear because we're meant to do this with each other. Wow. Even I know in our life, like we have a few families, but like you just walk in, you don't knock. Exactly. And my kids exactly. will look at me and I'm like, well, no, this is one of those families. You just walk in yes. and it's yes. something. And I oh. talked to, Sh- talk to Shannon Martin, she has a book called Start With Hello about relationship Mm. and neighbors. And she talks about that no one drops in anymore. But when you drop in, it makes that other person feel so recognized. They were thinking of me and they felt 
comfortable exactly. enough to just drop by or to call someone wow. up last minute and say, come over for dinner. And that that's how life she talked about when we talk about the phone. When she was a child, the phone would ring. Now, listen, we've lost huh. anticipation, right? The phone would <laughs> ring. You didn't know who it was. Who's calling? Yeah, that was exciting. There was an element. And then, of course, everyone was so excited about caller ID, weren't they? Now I can decide if I want to answer, if I don't want to answer. Maybe it's a telemarketer. But now you don't get to have that gift of anticipation ever for the rest of your life. So who's calling? (laughs) And someone might call and it's a school night. They're going to say, hey, we have extra left. We have made the meals. She said beans because beans tend to expand. We've got extra beans. Come over for dinner. (laughs) And how exciting would that be as a child to all of a sudden be like, hey, we're we're packing up and we're going to the auntie's house or we're going to the neighbor's house for a quick dinner together. And so I think this is a really great way to wrap it up because the book is about Mm. what we're looking for. We're looking for relationship, Mm. but loneliness Mm. is an epidemic. Yeah. But overcoming it requires risk. I mean, that's Mm. the thing. And so we've got to decide I'm going to choose appropriate vulnerability. And that's what happens when you let people into your house. That's what happens when you drop by and don't know if they're going to be there or what will be going on. And it's what happens when you drop your plans and invite people or go over all those are risks they are it is a risk to invite it is a risk because a lot of people say no a lot of people cancel last minute it's just sort of the nature of our world and the way we do plans these days Mm -hmm. it is risky but it sure is worth it to have those relationships and you say it's a crisis of loneliness we are relationally bankrupt and actually there was a really interesting sentence in here from a doctor and he said during my years caring for patients (laughs) The most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. Wow. Yeah. It's huge. So I love the book, Andy, a fantastic book. For me, it hit at the right time and helped me to see the world in a very different light and Mm. to have hope and to be more intentional about the decisions that we're making, to think about the technologies that we introduce in a different way and really a meaningful read to me. Wow. That Thank is you. so encouraging, Jerry. Thank you. So people can, I'm sure, find this book wherever books are sold. The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And Andy, if people want to find you other places, where can they go? Well, fewer and fewer ways because I'm I'm minimizing my social it's media good. stuff. But, but yeah. there is a little website, Andy Crouch with a dash. Andy, Andy Wise slash or dash Crouch, C-R-O-U-C-H.com has my other books and a little bit about what I do and why. So Yeah, that's great. I know, interesting to minimize. I think for me, you know, trying to get these miles in this year, trying to get this time outside. And the point is to try and fill our lives with what we want to fill it with first and then have the leftover time for screens and not flip flop. And that just means you're not there as much. And people have to deal with it. And I've seen more and more, more and more authors that are off the grid. They're not available. And it's interesting. It's an interesting time that I think people are swinging back the other way. And it's an interesting point that now we know. Now we we know our grandparents yeah. didn't know they thought yeah. oh it's coming yeah. it's coming but now we do know and you say robots have arrived and i am no more fulfilled they have changed very little of what matters most fantastic book andy thank you so much for being here thank you jenny
No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 